This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Many big city school systems today, Philadelphia, Detroit, Chicago, are hanging by their fingernails on the very edge of a sheer fiscal cliff. And now we learn that the largest school district in the golden state of California, home of the richest companies in the world, is on the verge of fiscal collapse. A 2017 audit of the Los Angeles Unified School District found that the district was nearly $11 billion in the hole. And just recently, a study by the Reason Foundation says that audit, by overlooking some health obligations that are out there, is actually seriously underestimating the size of the financial peril of the Los Angeles district. The Reason study then offers several strategies for getting out from under this huge cloud of debt. I have with me today on the Education Exchange uh, Lisa Snell, one of the authors of the Reason Report. Lisa, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, Lisa, if I may say so, uh, this situation in Los Angeles is utterly unreasonable. How did the school district dig itself into such a financial hole? Well, we'll just start with the first thing that has happened to Los Angeles, and not necessarily a fault of the school district, except for that they haven't adjusted to it, is that they've lost 245,000 students in the last 15 years. So that would be one of the top 10 districts in the United States if you took all those kids together. And... You know, the popular narrative is that all those kids went to charter schools, but actually Los Angeles County has had an incredible amount of out-migration of families leaving both to other places in California and other states. So, you know, Riverside County, for example, which is kind of adjacent to L.A. County, has gained 120,000 students because property values are less, you know, it's less expensive to live there. Families have moved there. So... They've had, so the financial decline starts with they just don't have as much revenue as they used to have. But the problem is is that they have these huge legacy costs that were based on the fact that when they were at their peak, right, their pension spending, which is largely controlled by state contributions and state law, but then their health care and retiree benefits are more than anyone else in the country. And they actually have some of the most generous benefits in the nation in terms of what they give to their retirees and well, their it, families. Is that district policy or is that state of California policy? So that is district policy. Like LA Unified has complete control over their health care costs. I mean, obviously they have to negotiate it with unions, so they have pressure, but they actually do control their costs. So, for example, Oakland Unified, when they've been faced with fiscal distress, they actually cut a lot of their health care retiree benefits and greatly reduced the cost of their health care costs in order to, you know, help with their budget deficits. So health retiree benefits, which right now they have a $15 billion um, long-term obligation just for retiree and health care benefits, and that's about $30,000 per each of the 500,000 students that they have now. So just their health care costs alone are really eating into their operating revenue. And, in fact, one of the findings from our study is that between health care costs, pensions, 
and their special ed costs, which are also above normal in terms of being benchmarked against other urban districts, is almost 60% of their operating revenue by four years from now. Well, how much of that, on, how much of that is special ed, which they can't do much about because that's by state and federal law. So how much is it uh, special ed and how much is it health care? And, and so about 20% of their operating costs goes to special ed. But, I mean, they can't do anything about meeting federal and state law. That's a fact. But they actually are out of compliance with federal law, and they're under a lawsuit order. But they disproportionately are identifying students, so they have a much higher rate than other districts like them with the same kind of demographic profile. And then the other thing is they have stepped up the kind of services where a lot of their kids, instead of being mainstream, they're in very exclusive kind of um, care where it's restrictive care in a much higher, more expensive setting. And they're really out of the norm with other districts on that. And so that's part of their issue is just their, the way their strategy and they don't have any money at all going to early intervention, very little compared to other districts. And so, you know, keeping kids from being identified as special ed means that you have to spend resources on the front end right on things like reading so that you have a lower number of kids that eventually make it into special ed. So there is, while I agree they don't have a lot of, you know, control over special education and it is driven by state and federal law, they aren't strategically using those special education resources very well. So, and then when you look at the health care benefits, too, uh, aren't all these contractual obligations that they have made to retirees going to be very difficult to, uh, to get out of, even if they could renegotiate the collective bargaining agreement for future uh, retirees or future teachers? Uh, could they even legally back out of some of the arrangements that they have? Well, I mean, the district itself identified, like, a huge number of strategies. So they can't back out of some of the obligations. But, for instance, you know, they could offer fewer plans. So when retirees reach the age 65, they could look at, you know, Medi-Cal plans that follow on, like Kaiser, that would be much less expensive. So it's not going to be easy. I'll grant you that. But... There are ways, and the other thing is that they've actually been expanding these benefits instead of reducing them. So even where, you know, they have had control over the obligation, they actually have added more employees to get these benefits than in the past. And, and so it's not going to be easy, but it's something that they're going to have to look at in terms of their overall debt. Well, now, I know you've argued that the charter school enrollment is not the driving force here, but haven't charter schools, aren't they now serving nearly half the students or at least, no, wait, 30% of the students in Los Angeles? That's right. So, I mean, out of the 245,000, about 85,000 of those students probably would have enrolled in LA Unified if they didn't have a charter school to go to, right? But... For example, in 2017, you know, only 13% of the students that they lost enrolled in charter schools. So charter schools as well as district schools, you know, are facing kind of this demographic challenge where birth rates are falling and kids are leaving Los Angeles. So there's just not as many kids to serve. And so, 
you know, four or five years ago, about 30% of their loss was due, you know, to charter school students. Every year, a smaller and smaller percentage of that loss is due to charter schools. And then the other thing about this is... Is that because the charter schools are not growing? So the charter school enrollment is, is, is being held constant, and but you're getting a decline in the sheer number of students who are of the right age cohort. That's right. So, I mean, charter schools, like everyone, have greatly slowed their expansion. So they're still adding a few students, and they're still growing, but not like five to ten years ago when we saw this huge boom. And the other thing about that is it's not like they lost 100,000 students in the last couple of years, right? That 85,000 has been built up since the charter school movement started in Los Angeles. And so the argument that they have these fixed costs, literally for these different cohorts of charter school students, except for the students that have left in the last couple of years, they've had plenty of time to like adjust their buildings and their staffing. And I guess that's the other heart of what's going on in LA that we should talk about is They've had a $20 billion building boom. They built all these new schools. They have close to 700,000 seats, and they have 500,000 kids. And then instead of, you know, reducing staffing, both administrative and teachers, although they've, they've declined by 5% their teachers in the last five years, they actually have more employees than they've ever had before. And administration has grown by 16% while students have fallen in the last five years by 10% and teachers have fallen by 5%. And then your kind of other kinds of certified employees have actually um, 26% increased in the last five years. Well, what's the justification for that? Do they have any explanation for why they have to have so many administrators when they have fewer teachers and fewer students? Yeah, they haven't really said. I mean, there's, I mean, one thing that's happening is that they're spread so thin that at individual schools, principals will say that they don't have staff, and that partly is because they do have just too many schools open. And so you have schools, brand-new schools that are cannibalizing historical schools in L.A. Unified, and they might only be a few miles apart. And this is without charter schools. These are, you know, competition between L.A. Unified schools themselves. And so, you know... Well, why don't they just to... close down some of the schools? What's, what's the reason they don't move in that direction. That's right. I mean, it's so, I mean, so far <laughs> they just really gloss over that. And part of that is over the same time that they've been losing students, for a long time the narrative in Los Angeles was, oh, we're overcrowded, we have students in trailers, we need another, you know, they've had these state bond initiatives where they got billions of new dollars. And in order to justify that, they had to tell the story that they were overcrowded. And they maintained this narrative for a long time, even when they had schools that were unsustainable. And, you know, so if you took a school in L.A. right now, you have a lot of, like, high schools and middle schools that are under-enrolled by, like, up to 1,000 students, between 500 and 1,000 students. And so far they haven't been transparent about releasing now, someone could figure it out, of course, but about releasing the enrollment numbers compared to the capacity at individual schools. And compared to places even like Philadelphia or Detroit that you were talking about earlier or Denver, where they've been very intentional about closing schools, L.A. Unified so far has not taken that on or even acknowledged that it's something that needs to happen, like they've been completely silent about it. 
And it'll be interesting with the new superintendent to see if they've done a real estate audit, his advisory group, Austin Butner, and to see if they'll actually take that on. Well, so what is the politics of all of this? Why? It sounds like they can't do anything in any direction. What is the political situation that uh, that's uh, precluding them from taking action? Well, I know that in 2015, the superintendent then did an internal audit, and they said at that point that they needed to reduce staff by 10,000. And I really think that what's happened in L.A. Unified and the reason that politically they haven't done this is we've, in the state of California, been in a time of economic boom in terms of education funding. And so at the time that this 2015 internal report was released, they were at a fiscal cliff. But then in the last five years, because of you know, the tax increases on the wealthy through Proposition 30 and then through the local control funding formula, which actually gives more funding to school districts like L.A. Unified that have high populations of English language learners, low-income students, and foster care students. They've had this huge financial buffer. So at the time, the last five years, they've lost 55,000 students. They've had 33% increase in revenue. And so $1.1 billion they got just from weights for low-income students and disadvantaged students. That allowed them basically to mask a lot of this deficit spending. The money didn't get spent in the schools where those high-need students were at. In fact, Bruce Fuller from UC Berkeley just came out with a study last week, you know, saying that the district is spending more money on schools that don't have low-income kids. And so a lot of this you know, deficit spending has been on the backs of high-need students, and it really hasn't followed the legislative intent in California to wait extra money for these kids. Well, if they've but received now, all this, if they received all this uh, uh, extra revenue, Lisa, why are they running a bigger and bigger deficits? I, I don't get the. <laughs> yeah. So, so basically, Scott Price, who's the CFO, said last week that. They're spending about $500 million more a year than they're taking it, about a half a billion dollars. But because they did get this new money, right, it buffered them from the fiscal consequences of that. But now we're once again at a place where this local control funding formula is fully funded. There aren't any more students and their revenues. So last year the budget was $7.5 billion. This year it's at $7.4 billion they're actually at a place where now they're going to start completely eating into their reserves. And unless the next governor, which is what LA Unified is counting on, this is the political story really, is LA Unified is counting on somebody in the, at the state level to raise revenue for schools. And they're in this big um, advocacy group that's advocating that Los Angeles should be funded at the same level as New York City. And I think that is their strategy, not necessarily the new superintendent and Austin Butner strategy, but up until this point, politically, the strategy has been, you know, give us money to bail us out through revenue, and we are low-funded district with high-income kids. But in reality, LA Unified actually um, is funded higher, $1,300 higher than the 50 largest school district on average. So, 
even though New York City is an outlier, if you average the 50 largest districts, L.A. comes out above the average. So and here, here's the story that you're telling me. Running huge deficits is a political strategy for getting more money out of the state of California. So far, that seems to be the game that's been played in L.A. Now, whether it was an intentional strategy or it was a consequence of the fact that the governor of California happened to have a brand-new funding system that benefited a district, and it was a coincidence. Well, okay, but, but now let me ask you this this, this though, one question, that, Lisa. Maybe, maybe all this deficit and all this spending has had good things for the students because— the last I looked at L.A. test scores on the national assessment, uh, Los Angeles was going up. I mean, it was it was doing quite well relative to other uh, cities around the country. I'm not saying the students are higher performing than the average in the United States, but considering urban areas, the improvement in L.A. was much better than in most cities. So have there been some benefits from this extra spending? Right. I mean— on the average, on the state test, L.A. Unified is doing a little bit better or holding steady. And then on the NAEP, L.A. Unified is doing better than some other urban districts. Although, keep in mind that the charter school students in L.A. Unified are doing 30 points higher on the NAEP in terms of reading and math for 8th grade and 4th grade students. So the charter school students, same disadvantaged students, are really outscoring L.A. Unified as a whole. And... There's still 134 schools with the most disadvantaged students in L.A. Unified that on the state's rubric for the LCAP or this new, like, accountability system where they have different colors, so red and orange is really bad. 134 schools where, in reading and math, the students are in the red. And so, you know, you still have the most disadvantaged students that, are doing poorly in LA Unified. And it's clear that the money is not following those students. So on the whole, I mean, I wouldn't argue that the money has hurt LA Unified, but it's still not clear that it's targeting the students that are the most disadvantaged that could benefit the most in terms of gains. And well, it, it does sound to me, Lisa, that uh, Los Angeles could have a much more efficient and a lot more effective educational system than it has today. I've been speaking with Lisa Snell, Director of Education and Child Welfare at the Reason Foundation. Thank you, Lisa, for joining me today on the Education Exchange. Thanks so much. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.